Hello and welcome. You're listening to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode one, April 2022, read by Jenny Devitt and me, Terry Bennett. We hope you enjoy it. Even if you're not on a tight budget, you're probably starting to raise an eyebrow at the checkout for the cost of those modest few top-up items in your shopping basket. For those who break out in a cold sweat when the car starts making an odd clunking noise and ignore it in the hope that it'll simply go away, even those rising bills are starting to really hurt. Our food bills have stealthily increased over the last year, and that new energy bill this month is going to hurt, frankly. Let's not even mention the car fuel, rent or mortgage, council tax, even parking charges. And as always, it's the individuals on the lowest incomes who are hit hardest. It's not about those who choose to eat the chicken and not the leg of lamb. It's about the people that have to leave the chicken on the shelf. We have an ever-increasing demand on our local food banks and the Vale Pantry Community Food Store. What will happen in six months' time when the fuel bills go up again and the days are short and cold? Money worries are horrible. They sit heavily on your brain, they clamp down any day-to-day happy and they rear their angry, gnashing teeth to invade your dreams and keep you thinking in tight, panicky circles in the small hours of the night. What if you already work full-time around your family, are just about managing, and then someone whips out the rug from under your feet, asking for an extra £200 a month, please? Where does it come from? And it's not just domestic bills. More companies are concerned about losing their business now than at the height of the pandemic. Our farmer economists have been honest this month about the volatility of pricing and how this affects every level between the farm and your plate. I don't have any answers. I wish I did. I guess all we can do as individuals is to live consciously and cut our coat according to our cloth. For some, that will be cancelling an extra streaming service, maybe that gym membership they never use anyway. For others, it will mean not booking that holiday or shelving a wedding. But for some, it will mean increasing debts, a cold house and an empty stomach. And to finish on a higher note, our eldest son has this week been awarded his green card and finally booked a plane ticket home. It's been 15 months since I hugged him goodbye for a three-month trip and we're all just a little excited to see him. Laura. Local councillor headed straight to Krakow to help the refugees. The effects of the war have filled our screens and our conversations. Rachel Rowe has spoken to one local councillor who went straight to a refugee point in Krakow. Krakow is just one of many onward safe points from the Ukraine border. I've spoken to too many Polish people today torn by this war. Young staff at our lodgings and in the cafes who've said goodbye to young Ukrainian men who've gone home to fight. People who have Russian friends who've been hissed and spat at. This current generation in Poland was not expecting to see this. The recent events in Ukraine have shocked and appalled people across the world. However, local resident and chair of Shillingston Parish Council, Rachel McNamara, could not stand by and do nothing. She packed a bag and travelled to Krakow with an ex-colleague from British Airways to roll up her sleeves and help. When I contacted Rachel, I was curious as to why she decided to go to what is the edge of a war zone and whether it was part of a charity or NGO. We both felt sure there must be something we could do. 
We'd heard the visa application process was awful and thought we could just get stuck in. We are both ex-BA cabin crew with access to cheap flights and just years of experience travelling to strange and sometimes hostile environments. We, like others we met yesterday and today, are independent. There are lots of ex-cabin crew that we've met here. There are a couple of charities here, but I'd say there are as many people like us who just decided to pack a bag and try and help. Refugees in Krakow What were your first impressions of the impact of refugees on the city of Krakow? It's strange. Uh, Initially we couldn't find them and life in this affluent city looked unaffected, but then our instincts took us to the railway station. Suddenly the contrast from a life as normal to the refugee centre in the middle of a brand new train or shopping mall was striking. Every day, two trains arrive from the Ukrainian border. Refugees are cared for by loving volunteers with some basic financial support from the Polish government, about uh, £6 a day. Some prefer to stay, feeling far enough away to dodge the bombing, but close enough to feel connected with their loved ones, fighting or unable to escape. Hundreds of thousands are processed to Germany, Sweden, the USA and many other countries. They're hungry, without papers with uncertain futures. I came here with friends to help, and we're astonished by what we can do. We thought we might not be needed or welcome. Peeling fruit. So, how is your offer of support received, and what sort of things have you been doing? Open arms. There's a volunteer process and registration with the police, but it's also possible to just dive in and start peeling fruit. This morning, that's what I did. Mike went shopping with another volunteer for sanitary essentials and spent about £200 of his own money. He came back, helped give out the essentials and then helped with lunch. Rachel also described how refugees were helping each other in Kakov. Refugees are getting involved themselves. Some refugees are not looking to go any further. They've left friends and family behind and want to be far enough away to be safe but close enough to feel they haven't left properly. These refugees are starting to help the new refugees arriving. They work alongside us with food provision. Most importantly, some of the younger ones have multilingual skills in Polish, Ukrainian and English translation. Last night we learned from locals who are fearful for their own loved ones. Many Ukrainians lived in Krakow and went home to fight. There's also some fear that the war will spread here. How can readers help? It's important to know that there is still so much to do and help with. The visa application process takes about two and a half hours. Help is needed to do that with each applicant. Volunteers are also ladling soup, giving drinks, sorting accommodation, finding funds for onward transport and so on. I think sometimes we think that someone else is dealing with it. We had initially considered going to the border, but we were genuinely concerned that we should not take up required accommodation. Equally here, we have chosen accommodation with plenty of availability. Many volunteers are in hostels. There have been conflicting reports about what's needed. I think this is because what is required in Ukraine, on the border and here at the secondary refugee point, are different. So here... Fewer medical supplies are needed, but more daily sanitary essentials. Reading glasses, paper or plastic food dispensing stuff like plates, bowls, cups, cutlery. There's a supply here, so volunteers go and buy it each day. There are volunteers in Poland that money can be passed directly to in order to buy supplies.
register to be a sponsor on Homes for Families here, https colon forward slash forward slash www.gov.uk forward slash register hyphen interest hyphen homes hyphen Ukraine. Then email me on rachel at shillingston hyphen pc dot gov dot uk. I'll repeat that. Rachel at shillingston hyphen pc dot gov dot uk. And I'll connect them with the volunteers who are matching individuals and families here to the requirements of sponsors in the UK. UK agriculture feels the squeeze as the war in Ukraine hits home. Many are talking about the atrocities in Ukraine, but UK farmers are already fearing the repercussions of the war in Europe's largest granary, says Andrew Livingston. For more than a month now, the UK population has been horrified as they've watched Russian forces invade and attack Ukraine. 24-hour rolling news and social media have meant that the data and fear that comes with war is being viewed like never before. What the public may not know, however, are the long-lasting consequences the war will have on our own lives safely back in the UK. Fuel prices had gradually been rising since summer, but in the last month petrol and diesel have gone up nearly 20 pence per litre, the highest price in 14 years. The sharp rise in fuel cost is due to Russia being an oil and gas-rich country. Although it is believed that only 6% of our oil in the UK is imported from Russia, the global reduction in supply has caused the market wholesale price to increase. Unfortunately, the war is due to have larger ramifications than just the cost to run your car or heat your home. The food you eat is already rising in price and set to go higher. Ukraine and Russia are two of the largest exporters of agricultural commodities. Less supply, same demand. Due to Ukraine having the largest arable land use in Europe, the country is a massive producer of barley, wheat, rye, corn and countless other produce. To put it into context, Ukraine has a population of just over 40 million but has the agricultural capabilities to feed 600 million people. Mole Valley Farmers Alternative Feeds Trading Manager Catherine Ward explained the effects of the war. The trade does not expect to be able to get the normal amount exported from these regions, if any. So this tightens the supply up, but demand will stay the same, resulting in price increases in those products or replaced products. Ward buys and sells bulk raw materials and other feed products and says that in the space of a month, Wheat, maize and barley all went up by £100, or just under, per tonne. This obviously has huge ramifications on farm while trying to feed your animals. However, the Mole Valley employees explain that there are other issues raising costs on the farm. She continued, Others have been impacted by increases in energy costs that have resulted from the war, which impacts on distilling and crushing plant, hitting margins and resulting in higher prices risk of shutdown in poultry. One farmer who has been feeding the squeeze on his farm in West Dorset is chicken farmer Tim Gelfs. He has 15,000 chickens across two sites and explained how dire the current situation really is. Our feed costs in April will go up to the tune of £6,000 per month above our budgeted price with little impact on the egg price yet. If the price he is paid for the eggs isn't improved, 
he says he will just move away from chickens. Fellow farmers he knows have already done the same. I can close my chicken unit at the end of this crop or whenever it becomes unviable. You just shut it down and then you don't replace them. Simple as that. I know people aren't reordering pullets because the pullet price has gone up over a pound a pullet because of the feed and fuel costs. A lot of people just shut down. Feeding ourselves. This isn't the first time that food security issues have flared up over the last few years. In March 2020, as the world shut down due to COVID-19, fears of empty shelves in the supermarket began to heighten. The NFU poultry rep for Dorset says that the country needs to be self-sufficient and food secure. He said, we should be producing enough food that we can feed our country in calories every day, rather than going for 60% or 70%, as that is no good if we can't buy 30% from elsewhere. Nowadays, we will always buy food from abroad, because we'll want choice in the supermarket. But if we haven't got that choice, we've got to produce it here. Doubly ambitious. Currently in the UK, the National Farmers Union plans for agriculture to be carbon neutral by 2040. To do this, the countryside is going through a major transition. Crops are being removed as farmers are being paid to have wildflowers, wild animals and public roaming in their field. But is this right? Gelf says we need to try to do our bit for the environment. He says, I don't know if you can achieve both. It's worth looking at and it's worth exploring it. To say that either we've got to produce food or look after the environment is a bit of a no-no going forward because the population is going to grow, so they've got to go hand in hand. Whether there's a food crisis or not, at the moment, longer term, we have to balance each of them out. Because if we just buy our food from abroad and keep our countryside looking lovely and full of birds and bees, all we're doing is exporting the problem to a different country. It's a world problem, so we're not actually sorting it. Mittens across the ocean. A unique heritage project is reviving historic connections between North Dorset and Newfoundland and has already led to a couple of remarkable discoveries, says BV columnist Roger Guttridge. A humble pair of mittens that probably started life in Sturminster Newton has turned up in a private museum in a remote part of Newfoundland and is causing ripples of excitement on both sides of the Atlantic. The mittens are the world's only known surviving garments made of swanskin, which was uniquely manufactured in the Blackmore Vale from the 16th to the 19th centuries. Dorset's Fishing Mitts They came to light as a direct result of a heritage project called the Swanskin Seafarers of Sturminster Newton, which is bringing together historians, museums, teachers and students in both Sturminster and Twillingate, Newfoundland. As word of the project spread around Newfoundland's remote north coast, Peter Porter came forward to say he had the mittens in his museum on Change Islands. Peter has a ledger recording the sale of the mittens in 1899, but they may be decades older, and the material would have been made in the Blackmore Vale. Former teacher Jocelyn Bath told the BV from Twillingate, My father remembers his dad having a pair. They were favoured by the fishermen because they were warm but could also be removed quickly when the need arose while fishing or sealing. Twillingate and Sturminster Jocelyn has also uncovered some family documents dating back to 1816 that included orders for swanskin and references to Sturminster Newton. 
An estimated 92% of the ancestors of people in Twillingate, population 2,121, and neighbouring Change Islands, population 208, and Fogo Island, population 2,244, came from Dorset, and many of those from North Dorset. As I discovered when I visited Twillingate in 1997, a huge proportion of residents have traditional Dorset surnames and speak with strong elements of the Dorset accent and dialect. The story of North Dorset's close connection with Newfoundland dates back to the 16th century, when hundreds of ships sailed annually from West Country ports to exploit the North Atlantic's rich stocks of codfish. No swans were harmed in the making of these mittens, in those days, the Blackmore Vale was predominantly sheep farming country, and much of the wool was turned into a thick flannel type cloth called swanskin. Swanskin, whose only connection with swans was its colour, was ideal for clothing fishermen working in the cold and wet North Atlantic waters, and Newfoundland became the main market for a fast growing production line. The earliest reference to swanskin is dated 1578 when Sturminster clothier James Young applied for tax relief on cloth sold to mariners going beyond the seas. In 1611, a fulling mill was built alongside Sturminster's grain mill. Here, water-powered fulling stocks hammered the fabric until it was sufficiently felted to make it waterproof. By 1793, no fewer than 200 Sturminster people were employed in swanskin production, an industry which also extended to Shaftesbury, Stallbridge and the villages. Between 4,000 and 5,000 35-yard pieces were produced each year and carted to Poole, whose ships dominated the Newfoundland trade in the 18th and 19th centuries. A trade directory reported of Sturminster... The principal manufactory carried on here is for white bays or swanskin, in which the poor, who are very numerous, are chiefly employed. The Sturminster dialect poet Robert Young recalled that the racks on which the cloth was fixed covered one or two fields. Many a time I have watched the weavers' swift shuttles passing between the tightened threads, he wrote. The fulling mill was demolished about 1800 when the swanskin trade was beginning to decline in the face of competition from the industrialising North and Midlands. By 1812, the number of people employed had dropped to 700 or 800. As this trend continued, some of the Sturminster cloth merchants filled the economic vacuum by switching to cod fishing. This, in turn, led to a dramatic increase in the migration of Dorset people to Twillingate and other developing fishing communities. High School Zoom The Swanskin Seafarers Project, supported by a £14,000 grant from the Association of Independent Museums, or AIM, and the National Lottery Heritage Fund, will include research led by the Sturminster Newton Heritage Trust – arts projects, including a film led by arts company Emerald Ant and hands-on research by students on both sides of the Atlantic. As the former Old World Connection columnist for Newfoundland's Down Homer magazine, I was honoured to kick off the project by talking to 100 students at Sturminster High School and, by video link, to students at the J.M. Olds Collegiate in Twillingate. Students from the two schools have since met each other via Zoom and more exchanges are planned. The Twillingate youngsters are especially intrigued by the discovery that most of their ancestors came from a small area of southern England and are plunging into family history. 
JMOC principal Stephen Earle said his school community felt privileged to be involved in a project which had already exceeded expectations. Our students are already making some amazing connections between Twillingate and Stermanster Newton, particularly around their ancestry, he said. This project is allowing us easily to expand into some of our deep learning objectives and we look forward to continuing this partnership. The Twillingate students are planning a school trip to Peter Porter's Museum on Change Islands, which is also home to a Newfoundland pony refuge. The hardy ponies, whose numbers have dwindled in recent decades, are descended from the New Forest, Dartmoor, Exmoor and Connemara ponies that went out on the ships as working animals. Jocelyn Bath added... We've had so much community interest in this project on our end, the response has been fantastic. At Sturminster High School, one of the topics that has caught students' imagination is the apprenticeship of young orphans to the Newfoundland trade. In 1621, Sturminster clothier William Williams left money in his will to apprentice two boys a year from Sturminster, Shaftesbury and Blandford in rotation to the sea service. Each apprentice received two jackets, two pairs of breeches, a greatcoat, three shirts, two pairs of trousers, one hat, two pairs of shoes, two pairs of stockings, two handkerchiefs, knives, combs, caps, bed, pillows and a large blanket. The William Williams Charity, which also aided clothiers, serge makers, linen weavers and felt makers, continues to fund students 400 years later. Sturminster High School students are furthering their studies with visits to the Mill, Museum and the Dorset History Centre. This project has enabled staff and students to weave the golden thread of local history through the existing curriculum, creating exciting opportunities for further study, said the school's Head of Humanities, Sandra Mitchell. Is it the right time, wrong place, for a solar farm at Hazelbury by Rachel Rowe? Is a rural site in Dorset right for a large solar farm? Rachel Rowe revisits the proposal for an industrial-scale solar farm between Mapowder, Hazelbury Bryan and Pullham. We're all aware of escalating energy prices and the impact of the war in Ukraine on oil and gas supplies. More sustainable solutions need to be found quickly. But what if they're not the most appropriate ones for a rural site? If you have recently been out on a spring walk and admired the delightful scenery in the Blackmoor Vale, how would you feel if you turned a corner and encountered a mile-long solar panel farm? We revisited the solar panel proposals planned for a site between Mapowder, Hazelbury Bryan and Pullham to see what progress has been made. When does a plot become a blot? How large can a solar panel site be before it becomes a blot on the landscape? The area around the proposed site is prime farmland and lies within the setting of the most beautiful northern part of the Dorset Area of Outstanding Natural Beauty, AONB. The views from Woolland Car Park and the Wessex Ridgeway in particular would be obliterated by a mile-long solar farm. At 77 acres, it would be one of the largest solar farms in the southwest. Apart from losing good agricultural land, Ian Bryan from Save Hardy's Vale said, They need it to be as big as possible to be economically viable. This type of development eats up farmland for very little return. The group supports solar panels, just not on an industrial scale in a rural area. A handy location. Solar panels have to go somewhere, but why did the developers pick this particular site? 
At a meeting in October last year, a representative from the proposed developer, British Solar Renewables, explained the reasons for creating an industrial solar power station at North Dairy Farm. It turns out there are already 132,000 kVA power lines running across the fields, making it highly attractive as a site for a solar farm. Further reasons included doing it for Dorset Council and for local supply. However, the people of Spettisbury recently learned the electricity generated from a solar farm near them is actually supplying London, raising questions about where power from Mapowder would go. Floodplain And could the developers have picked a site with a far lower risk of flooding? Remember the day of the torrential rain and flooding in October last year? Mapowder was cut off by flooding for hours. Photos from the proposed solar farm site reveal a weakness. Its position where the River Lydon and Wonston Brook meet, and where the high landscape points converge, mean this area is always vulnerable to flooding. It's not somewhere you would naturally choose to place solar panels, where they would probably get submerged in heavy rain or flash flooding. There are also footpaths in the area that would be significantly affected by the development. We all need to change our habits and learn to live with alternative energy sources in the months and years to come. But how effective is solar power compared to other sustainable energy sources? Compared to hydropower or offshore wind, it lags behind and is less efficient. A planning opportunity? As pointed out in an article in the February issue of the BV, Dorset has been slow on the uptake of solar panels on housing. Is there an opportunity for new housing developments in Dorset to be fitted with solar panels as a more sustainable solution? Rupert Hardy, chairman of the North Dorset CPRE, said, On the solar front, we are well aware of the climate emergency and have not objected to a number of solar farms in North Dorset, except for the more inappropriate ones, which are often the larger ones, that would desecrate our countryside. We are supportive of small, less than 5 megawatt, community-funded solar farms that can be well screened and more deployment of roof-mounted solar PV. What is the current position? The senior landscape architect at Dorset Council has recommended the site be opposed due to its impact on the landscape. It is now Dorset Council's responsibility to decide whether to support or oppose the proposal, which could see a significant effect on a beautiful part of North Dorset. There are more than 200 letters opposing the proposals on the planning portal, reflecting the strength of feeding from local people. Although we all have a responsibility to look at more sustainable ways of living, there is clearly a time and place for developments on an industrial scale. The Random 19 Questions, an interview by Laura Hiscock. Actor and top actor's agent Kerry Gardner takes on The Random 19. His own acting career may have peaked without Pompeii, but as a theatrical agent, Kerry Gardner went on to shape the careers of some of our best-loved British actors. Now living in Dorset, this month Kerry braved the random 19 questions. Born in India to British parents at the tail end of the British Raj, and packed off to a miserable English boarding school at a very young age, Kerry Gardner's years as a stage and television actor culminated in his time as Nauseus in Up Pompeii. Without an agent and realising he wasn't good at selling himself... It was embarrassing, to tell the truth. He left acting to set up an actor's agency, Kerry Gardner Management, and helped fashion the careers of Imelda Staunton, Miranda Richardson, Pam Ferris, and Bill Patterson, to name but a few world talents. 
After nearly 30 exciting years of this, he took on a partner, Andy Herity, who now runs Gardner Herity, retired and came to live in North Dorset. In his recent memoirs, Not Another Waltz, he has written a frank retelling of his journey from Harrogate to Hollywood. It came out to tumultuous indifference, which is rude. I'm a good read. It has 26 five-star reviews on Amazon to prove it. They include beautifully written and sharp wit, but also compassion. Funny, sometimes sad, and very often wickedly mischievous. So there. Question 1. What's your relationship with the Blackmore Vale? The loose North Dorset area, not us. I fell in love with Dorset when I was working, if you can call acting working and not fun, on Bournemouth Pier and stayed through that glorious summer in a house outside the town. I've been living just outside Sturmister Newton for the past 25 years. It's a magical county. Question two. What was the last song you sang out loud in your car? I have adapted Gershwin's Bess, You Is My Woman Now, from my dog, Biscuit, so I sing the first verse. Biscuit, you're my woman now, to her in a gruff voice, and the second verse in her much purer soprano addressed to me. So it goes, Kerry, eyes your poodle now. After that, it's Oklahoma sweeping down the plain. Question three. What was the last gift you gave someone? Gift-giving at my age is a problem. Because you have everything you need and gifts are inevitably greeted with, oh, thank you, another one. So you end up going out to buy the most odd thing you can find, which will naturally end up being greeted with either, thank you, that's terrific, or a horror-struck, what is it? It's a 50-50 adventure. Question four. It's Friday night, you have the house to yourself, and no work is allowed. What are you going to do? Mind your own business. Question five. What was the last movie you watched? Would you recommend it? Simon Amstel's Benjamin. Being a bit soppy myself, the love story appealed to my treacly core. The acting is superb, though, and it's very funny. Question six. What is your comfort meal? Suitably thoughtful pause. Well, I think it's just about anything that passes in front of me. Question seven. What would you like to tell 15-year-old you? Try and see the world through other people's eyes, not just your own. Question eight. The best crisps flavour? Plain, lightly sea-salted, probably walkers. If it's got flavours like chilli, well, then I'm afraid I'm obliged to spit it out. That's not a crisp. That's the work of the devil. Question nine. And the best biscuit for dunking? Swift and unhesitating. Doves digestives. They must be doves. You've never tried them? Rush out now and buy them. Everyone who comes to my house adores them. I mean, I may have a gun to their head at the time of asking, but it's still a unanimous response. Question 10. What shop can you not pass without going in? Any hardware store, they're just an Aladdin's cave of extraordinary mysterious objects, the uses of which can only be guessed at. I could spend hours in one very happily. Question 11. What book did you read last year that stayed with you? What made you love it? A History of Loneliness by John Boyne. It is superb. Witty, searching, moving, honest. The book is stunningly written. It is immediate, shocking and powerful. Question 12. Cats or dogs? Dogs, dogs, dogs. My present one is an excuse for me to write poetry, which she usually appreciates. I'm still working on... There's a little yellow poodle to the north of Katmandoodle. There aren't too many rhymes, 
for Poodle, so I sense it'll take a time to complete. Cats can be very beautiful, but I could never love a serial killer. Question 13. Your top three most visited favourite websites, excluding social media and BBC News. Can I cheat with a podcast? I do love LBC with James O'Brien, who's on live 10am to 1pm weekdays. There's always a catch-up online. Look for James O'Brien, the whole show. A heavy pause as Kerry searches his memory for another website. I am just not a creature of the web, I'm afraid to say. It's so infuriating I tend to find it safer to stay off it. Why is there no common sense on the internet? I'm going to have to say Amazon, aren't I? Sorry, I'm not proud. But it is so convenient. I simply can't drive across half of the county trying different shops to see if they have the things that I want. Usually to be told no, but I can get it online. You do need to be careful to check the weights though. I've ended up with vast sacks of dog food from my poor little poodle more than once. Huge they were. The weevils moved in before she was halfway through. Question 14. What's your most annoying trait? A rather rude urge to throw a verbal hand grenade into a conversation when I'm bored with it. Question 15. Tell us about one of the best evenings you've ever had. Oscar night in Tinseltown. A truly bizarre day led up to the most otherworldly evening of razzmatazz and over-the-top shows of advertising I've ever experienced. The clothing, the jewels, all hanging on the shapeliest bodies that exercise the surgeon's knife, diet and money can produce. The bonhomie of all those fabled film stars was just jaw-dropping fun, but completely manufactured. Question 16. What's your secret superpower? A sense of the ridiculous. All my best friends have it. Without it, conversations can grind on without anything being said for what seems like hours. Pleasantries should be a dirty word. Question 17. Your favourite quote. Try not to dominate or be dominated. Ursula Le Guin, American author. Speaks for itself, really. Question 18. What in life is frankly a mystery to you? Cruelty to defenceless children and animals. And finally, question 19. Chip shop chips or home-baked cake? Well, I like both, obviously. But cake does go on rather, doesn't it? By the time I'm halfway through, I've had enough. It just goes on forever. So I'm going to have to choose the chips. Please. Turning No One Likes Olives into a business supplying Fortnum and Mason via Take That. Giles Henschel, the award-winning Olivier who came to his national artisan brand by way of school expulsion, the army, being deported from Libya with his wife twice, and Take That. From a youth spent rebelling against the expectations of a world which insisted on comparing him to his disciplinarian headmaster father, Giles Henschel followed an obvious route to becoming the Olive People with his wife Annie. I was eventually expelled by my own father at the age of 16 and kicked out of home too. I joined the Royal Engineers, who were known for building things then blowing them back up again, which was exactly what I wanted to do. I was told I wasn't bright enough to operate a giant digger, but perhaps I should apply to Sandhurst. I did, and then joined one squadron, 30 Signal Regiment, in Blandford, the very best posting. We flew all over the world, Hong Kong, Belize, Namibia, Bahamas, Beirut. Out on Civvy Street, I left the army as a captain, expecting simply to walk straight into another job. 
I obviously started to apply for 150,000 a year jobs and didn't get them. So I reduced my expectations a little and applied for more, down to 80,000, 60,000, 35,000. The last job I was rejected from was a second-hand car salesman in Clapham for 11,000 a year. I didn't ever get an interview, not one single interview. I was 30 and living in a bedsit in Walthamstow. My landlady, Judy Walker, worked for Renata John, Elton John's wife, who owned a music management business, and Judy sat me down one night. I want to start my own business. I know the music, but I don't know the administration, which you do. And so we started. We had some opera singers and jingle singers on the books, and then a guy called Nigel from Manchester called. I'm putting a band together, and I need you to run the auditions, and then get them working together. Judy did the first auditions, brought me a demo tape to which I said, yeah, they're all right. She spent some time grooming the band, took them all over the place, and eventually got them into a kid's Saturday morning TV show, and then on to Terry Wogan the same evening. On the Sunday morning, Nigel called, yes, I'll take them from here, thanks, and they were gone. We had no contract, we were never paid, and that was it with the music industry for me. Oh, the band? Oh, yes, they were called, take that. The only thing I still have is the original demo tape, the first time they ever sung together, labelled March 1991. And then there was Annie. I was working for a charity in Covent Garden when I met Annie, who was flying for Japan Airlines. We got married on the 4th of July in 1992, living in a dilapidated houseboat. Annie was from Stir originally, and neither of us wanted to continue what we were doing. We both wanted to take a gap year out. So we sold what we could and bought two motorbikes. We still have them, two BMW R100 GSs. And we travelled the Mediterranean, down through Spain, up the coast of France, Italy and Greece. It was during the Yugoslav War, so we had to adjust our route to go through Turkey and Syria, an utterly amazing country to be in in 1993. Back into Israel, Jordan, Egypt, all the way down to the Nile, into Sudan, through the western desert into Libya where we got arrested and deported twice, and then bumped back to the UK and ended up in a bedsit flat broke in Southampton. The one thing we'd found throughout that trip, every meal of the day was an olive. Everywhere you went, bar, restaurant, roadside shack, there was always an olive of some description. On the trip, we learned to use food as a social lubricant. We were an anomaly. These two people on our motorbikes in winter but we found a, wow, this is delicious, how have you made that? Got people chatting. We kept journals, noted recipes, but arrived back in the UK not thinking about food at all. And eventually, the olive. Our bedsit landlord was an old army colleague, and he was an ardent nudist. We were stuck at home, no money, deep in post-travelling blues, and this guy wandering around naked while we tried to set up a training business. Annie and I were so depressed... Eventually Annie said, why don't we just go into town, buy some good bread, wine, some nice olives, we'll put up the tent in the back garden, and we'll pretend we're travelling again. And so we did. Up went the tent, we drank the wine, ate the bread, and spat out the olives, because they were so awful. We started to make them for ourselves, with a bucket of olives fermenting in the corner of the bedsit. All our guests refused to eat them. No, no, we don't like olives. But after a glass or two, they couldn't stop eating them. These are amazing, really good. They don't even taste like olives. You should sell them. We resisted, after all. No one likes olives. But eventually, 
we put our last £500 into enough jars and enough olives. On the 28th of October 1993, we took ourselves to the Rural Living Show in Bath and came back with £1,875.80. We have no idea who gave us the 80 pence. So we did it again the following week, and the week after that, and eventually we found ourselves doing the Country Living Show in London the following March, where it actually began. A very pregnant lady wandered past the stand and stuck her fingers in a bowl, ate one olive and moved on. I hate that. I was about to call out, do not use your fingers, but she'd already gone. Then she came back ten minutes later and did exactly the same thing with a different olive. Again, I couldn't catch her. She circled back for a third go, and this time I was, I was armed with a cocktail stick. I was ready to stab her in the back of the wrist when she said, Do you supply the trade? Why, yes, of course, I said, suddenly feeling very friendly to the nice lady. She pulled her card out, and she turned out to be the food development director of Fortnum & Mason. I've been looking for somebody to supply Fortnum & Mason with olives. I've tasted olives all over the place, and I have never tasted anything as good as these. These are what I want on my shelves. Will you supply us? Up until then, it had just been for pin money. It was suddenly a serious business. That was 1994, and we're still supplying Fortnum & Mason to this day. We started in Southampton in that bedsit, but circumstances meant we moved into a house owned by Annie's parents back here in Stir, doing the olives in the shower room. We moved to Stapleford, to Wilson, to Mere, and we were going to Wincanton, but the deal fell through on signing day, and we had just six weeks to find new premises. I'd been driving past the place at Rolls Mill, which was just walls, no windows, no heat, light or power. We bought it on the condition it could be finished in the six weeks. We moved in on the Queen's Jubilee in 2002, 20 years this year. And so to Giles' eight music choices, along with how and why they stuck in his life. Bakerman by Laid Back, first heard when serving in Harrogate with the Royal Signals, running the external leadership troupe. I was spending a lot of time in the hills, and it brings me back to those days. The lyrics do have meanings. The line, Sagabona kunjane veni, is Swahili for hello, how are you, which is basically how we'd greet people in the hills, in English, not Swahili. Sensitive Kind by J.J. Kale. I'd loved J.J. Kale since the time I first discovered his laid-back style of blues, played with such a casual ease and musicality. He always shunned the big time, and his wife used to say, if you want to hear the real J.J., just come around to the Airstream one evening and listen to him on the porch. This particular track has special meaning to me, as it just reminds me so much of Annie, original Oliveira and my rock for the last 30-plus years. Sodade by Caesarea Ivorlia. I came across this wandering through the streets of Cordoba. I was drawn to a cafe where this was playing one sunny Sunday morning while we were out there for the olive harvest. Her voice is so plaintive and speaks to the heart and was just perfect to let wash over us as we sat and watched the world go by. We discovered later that the song is sung in her native Cape Verde Creole, a blend of Portuguese and West African languages, and speaks of loss and sorrow at leaving the islands. Into the Night by Santana. I've always liked Santana, and this collaboration with Chad Kroger really makes the most of his voice and Carlos Santana's amazing guitar skills. It makes me think of family holidays, driving with the windows down in a beaten-up rental, hot air and sandy beaches with the kids singing along in the back. Go 
by public service broadcasting. I was seven when the first moon landing happened and I was fascinated and begged to be allowed to stay up and watch as Neil Armstrong first stepped onto the surface. My favourite film is Apollo 13, the story of the greatest space rescue. To hear the original radio transmissions from those on board and at Mission Control stitched together in this track still gives me goosebumps. Such an original and timeless piece, and yes, as an avid Blue Peter watcher, I did make the rocket from fairy liquid bottles. Mul Mantra by Snatur Kaur. My mother, Nora Forbes Stewart, was a deeply spiritual and widely read lady for whom no one religion, creed or faith was enough. This was one of her favourite pieces of music, which we played at her funeral last year. She is sorely missed by so many, and I'll be forever grateful for all she opened my eyes to, from the occult to different faiths, poetry, and forever seeing the beauty in everyone who was lucky enough to meet her and life itself. Refugee by Oi Vai Oi. Oi Vai Oi is a British collective of musicians celebrating many different genres, but with a distinctly Yiddish flavour. The name is Yiddish for Oh Dear, and being of Jewish descent, this sings to roots I never really knew I had. Especially poignant, given the current unjust war in Ukraine, and while this is not a political statement or choice, we are all refugees in some way, some more than others, and there but for the grace of God go all of us, this song is a reminder of both where I'm from and where so many are headed. Senegal Fast Food by Amadou and Mariam. I came across Amadou and Mariam while working at the Lama Tree Musical Festival as MC on one of the fringe stages. I loved the feel and warmth of their music, and this song from their fourth album, Dimanche à Bamako, is produced by and featuring another favourite artist, Manu Chao. This song combines them both and takes us back to a five-week road trip in an old Land Rover down to Morocco and the edge of the Sahara we took as a family for my 50th birthday. This was on a playlist called Sahara Songs and we played it endlessly as we reached the very edge of the road in a town called Mohammed El Ghislain, about 20 kilometres from the Algerian border. Amazing Chicken Tajin followed by the most miraculous night spent camping under the full moon and stars way out in the dunes. And if the waves were to wash all your records away, but you had time to save just one, which would it be? I'd save the J.J. Kale track, Sensitive Kind. It's probably the only one I can sing along to and keep in tune, as well as being a reminder of Annie. My luxury item would be an acoustic guitar with unlimited string replacements. And before you ask, my book would be the best primer of how to play the damn thing properly, as I've been playing for 45 years and still can't do it any justice. Would you consider a prefabricated home? We've come a long way since the temporary post-war emergency housing gave prefabricated a bad name, says Rupert Hardy, chair of North Dorset Council for the Protection of Rural England, CPRE. Some of us still remember the stigma surrounding prefab housing. In the post-war years, prefabricated homes were seen as a temporary solution to the housing crisis. Many were intended to last no more than a decade, were poorly made and insulated, but surprisingly are still standing. Their lack of appeal was also related to British house building's traditional use of brick and stone, rather than Northern Europe's use of wood, which lends itself to prefabrication. 
building standards have moved on considerably since the 1940s when an indoor bathroom was considered a luxury. Modular homes on sale today are energy efficient, built to last and quick to assemble. CPRE often complains about excessive housing targets, but there's clearly a need for more genuinely affordable and social housing. Modular homes should be 10 to 20% cheaper than traditionally built homes once scale economies have been achieved. Although there are few on sale in North Dorset now, this is likely to change. The eco-credentials. We are of course also faced with a climate emergency and modular homes can boast eco-friendly credentials using sustainable materials and construction methods, incorporating features such as enhanced insulation, solar panels and heat pumps. Many are made of wood, the most sustainable building material with the lowest carbon footprint. They are therefore more environmentally friendly and cheaper to run. Off-site construction also requires fewer builders, thus addressing one of the housing industry's major challenges. Modular building offers a lower carbon footprint as there are fewer lorry deliveries to the site, which has a pleasant knock-on effect for people living nearby being less affected. In other European countries such as Germany, factory-made modular homes are common. In Sweden, more than 80% of detached houses use prefabricated timber elements. Flat-pack housing? Things are changing here in the UK too, and political support is also growing. Of the 200,000 homes built in the UK each year, only 15,000 are modular, but it's anticipated that this will now start to rise rapidly. Insurance giant Legal and General has opened a factory in Leeds with the intention of producing 4,000 units a year. Housing associations are expected to be major customers. Worthing Council in Sussex has signed up with Boclock, a company jointly owned by IKEA, to build 162 flats on its own land. 70% of the properties are being sold using its innovative affordability model, which analyses how much residents can afford after tax and monthly living costs have been deducted. Standard features will include heat pumps and enhanced insulation. In the East Midlands at Inhome, Urban Splash are building 400 modular homes with heat pumps that use 67% less energy to build compared to a traditionally built unit. Sleepy Dorset may be slow to emulate other authorities, but even here change is expected soon. Many people's sons and daughters trying to get a foot on the housing ladder deserve no less. For many, the future will be prefabricated. Wayne recommends. On the subject of politics, given what is going on in the world today, this month's selections have a political theme. A fascinating and timely book by Oliver Bullock on how our capital became London grad and an incisive account of the second most powerful unelected woman in the UK today. Butler to the world. How Britain became the servant of oligarchs, tax dodgers, kleptocrats and criminals by Oliver Bullock, £20. How did Britain become the servant of the world's most powerful and corrupt men? From accepting multi-million pound trips from Russian oligarchs to enabling Gibraltar to become an offshore gambling haven, meet Butler Britain. In the immortal words of former US Secretary of State Dean Acheson, Britain has lost an empire and not yet found a role. But the funny thing was, Britain had already found a role. It even had the costume. The leaders of the world just hadn't noticed it yet. Butler to the World reveals how the UK took up its position at the elbow to the worst people on earth.
the oligarchs, kleptocrats and gangsters. We pride ourselves on values of fair play and the rule of law, but few countries do more to frustrate global anti-corruption efforts. We are now a nation of Jeeveses, snobbish enablers for rich half-wits of considerably less charm than Bertie Wooster. It doesn't have to be that way. Brilliant Marina Hyde, The Guardian. A savage analysis of Britain's soul, as essential as Orwell at his best. Peter Poranz. First Lady, intrigued at the court of Carrie and Boris Johnson, by Michael Ashcroft, £20. Carrie Johnson is not only the consort of the Prime Minister, she is also considered to be the second most powerful unelected woman in Britain after the Queen. Since she moved into Downing Street in July 2019, questions have been raised about her influence, her apparent desire to control events, and the number of her associates who have been appointed to positions of standing. Are these concerns justified? In this carefully researched, unauthorised biography, Michael Ashcroft scrutinises Mrs Johnson's colourful family, her attempt to become a professional actress, and her early decision to work in politics. Long before she moved into number 10, Mrs Johnson made a name for herself as a Conservative Party press aide before becoming a special advisor to two cabinet ministers and eventually director of communications at Conservative campaign headquarters. Aside from politics, she is the mother of two young children and campaigns in the fields of the environment and animal welfare. Carrie Johnson is a very modern prime ministerial spouse. This book offers the electorate the chance to assess exactly what role she plays in Boris Johnson's unpredictable administration and why that matters. Do what you love, love what you do. From childhood birds' nests to interpretation boards and book covers via life-size rhinos and grommet, Maria Burns shares with Edwina Baines how her love of the Dorset countryside has shaped her career. As children, we talk about what we want to be when we grow up. It's a dream of the future, something we can put off for years before it becomes a reality. The majority of us have no idea what the future actually holds, but for a lucky few, it's a straightforward answer. Having spent her childhood in Purbeck, exploring the stunning natural habitats and wildlife around her and painting what she could see, Maria Burns was never in any doubt about what she would do. We chatted in the garden of her home near Wareham, in the sanctuary of her beautiful studio. My father was a policeman. He joined the force at the age of 15 and was posted to Wareham when I was four. I get my strong work ethic from him. Getting a proper job. As children, we went on lots of walks. We spent all our childhood on the beaches, looking in rock pools and developing an interest in nature. I had a friend whose father was an ecologist and we made a little museum in his garage out of our collections of fossils and old birds' nests. We used to charge the neighbours to come and look. I was always drawing at school and would get told off for doodling all the time. Despite her father's misgivings about her earning ability and the need for a proper job, she went on to train as a natural history illustrator at the Bournemouth and Poole College of Art and Design. On leaving college, Maria worked as a graphic designer for Poole Tourism, which gave me a good grounding, she said. She subsequently set up Maria Burns Illustration and Design and now has 30 years of freelance illustration and graphic design experience behind her. From nature to grommet. Rather than work in London, as most illustrators do, Maria is at home in the Purbex, where the variety of coast and countryside provides her with everything she needs for inspiration. 
It just feels right being here, she says. Maria's talent and versatility enable her to be involved in a huge range of fascinating projects, and her body of work incorporates a variety of styles. As well as the more traditional watercolour natural history and historical illustrations, she ranges from decorative, bold images using mixed-media collage techniques to, more recently, digitally produced artwork. In Bristol, the Wallace and Gromit Grand Appeal, Gromit Unleashed, a public art trail, featured Maria as one of the official artists who decorated the Shaun the Sheep figures and other Gromit characters. The trail featured giant fibreglass sculptures, which were positioned in high footfall and iconic locations around Bristol and the surrounding area. Maria's Tropicanus Gromit, sponsored by the House of Fraser, raised £37,000 for Bristol Children's Hospital. The model was filled with zingy colours, sweet fruits, agile flamingos and a friendly toucan to provide a dash of the Caribbean. There's also a T-shirt, which comes with a set of pens, for children to colour him in with. It was a wonderful project to be part of, chuckled Maria, but it began to get out of control when I had endless animals delivered to the house. The worst part was when my husband came home from work to find, in the lounge, two life-size rhinos that I was painting for Paint and Zoo and two Ardman animation ducks in the kitchen. I didn't have my own space at the time, so the animals had to be in the house. At that point, my husband decided to build my studio. He thought it was the end of the animals, but I had to tell him an elephant, an otter, a pig and a giant bear. These have been lovely projects to be part of because so much money has been raised for charity and wildlife causes. Boards and books. Maria has found her niche by combining all her interests, skills and knowledge to specialise in producing natural history and interpretation boards sited on footpaths, nature reserves and historical sites. Working with the Broadstone Neighbourhood Forum to create five large interpretation boards detailing the history and natural history of Broadstone Village was a year-long project and involved a huge amount of research before she could start the design and illustration. There are now interpretation boards at various locations in Dorset, including Holton Heath Station and the Wareham Walls Trail. It gives Maria great pleasure to walk past and see visitors reading the information. One of my own favourite summer walks is along the Priest's Way from Worthmer Travers to Swanage. Little did I know that it was Maria who designed the way markers, leaflets and information boards along the route. A regular contract involves painting stunning illustrations in the English Garden magazine for garden landscaper and writer Non Morris's monthly column. And an exciting current project in Maria's busy timetable is to design dust jackets and illustrations for successful novelist Rachel McLean, whose six books in the Dorset crime series include The Corf Castle Murders and The Fossil Beach Murders. Maria feels that her already wide-ranging skills are constantly adapting and changing. She's always learning. Where to find Maria's work? Purbeck Arts Weeks, 28th of May to the 12th of June, will involve a joint exhibition at Rollington Bar. Maria's work can also be found at Purbeck Artisan Yard, Wareham. A visit to her Etsy shop gives an idea of what will be on show. You can purchase Maria's most popular designs on prints, illustrated maps, greeting cards, cushion covers and even a mindfulness book. Unclouding, clearing the way to a brighter outlook. Something we can all hope for at the moment. The Tale of the Runaway Rector 
There's nothing like a naughty vicar story to set tongues a-wagging, and the Reverend W.M. Anderson certainly did that, says Roger Guttridge. The rector of Durweston and Brownston was already low in diarist Julietta Forrester's estimation, and when he eloped with a parishioner, his reputation went through the floor. Received a letter from Mrs. Osborne saying that Reverend W. Anderson had gone off on Wednesday with Mrs. Axford, Lord Portsman's coachman's wife, Julietta noted, on January the 25th, 1912. There had been talk about them for some time. He said he'd loved her for 17 years. It seemed incredible. I never thought of Mrs. A behaving so, but Anderson was bad enough for anything. I believed he had sold his soul to Satan over the Durweston ghost. This was a reference to Durweston's headline-making poltergeist, the subject of this column in our October issue. Anderson was among those who took the spooky events of 1894-95 seriously, unlike the sceptical Mrs. Forrester. Even before the poltergeist, Julietta, wife of James Forrester, agent for Lord Portsman's Bryanston estate, was not enamoured of the rector. Lord Portman was disgusted. After his first service at Brownston in 1893, Julietta wrote, I liked his appearance and voice. I wish I'd liked his sermon. In 1895, she complained that Anderson was neglecting the Brownston half of his flock. And when Durweston and Brownston played Blanford at cricket that same year, she commented that our rector, Mr Anderson, declined to play because he was afraid of the weather. It appears that God was not on their side either. After Blanford declared their innings at 300 for nine, the Durweston and Brownston 11 were skittled out for 70. Fast forward 17 years to 1912. On February the 3rd, Julietta noted that Lord Portman was very disgusted with Anderson after all he'd done for him, paying for him to go abroad, etc. She added, About two years ago, on hearing of the intimacy between Anderson and Mrs. Axford, Lord P. spoke to the former about it, but A. declined all the charge. Anderson's more charitable parishioners might have forgiven his inability to resist the lure of love, but less forgivable was the theft of his curate's pay packet and money from the coal club fund to finance the elopement. He had also left his wife, his mother, and his sister destitute, according to Julietta. No welcome in Halifax. Her diary continues. Axford had spoken to Lord P. about a divorce, but he'd actually seen his wife off by train when she left him, because people should not say they'd parted bad friends, or that he'd driven her from home. Lord P. told him he'd connived at the elopement, and therefore would be unable to obtain a divorce. The two, that's Anderson and Mrs. Axford, had first gone to Halifax to her brothers, but he refused to take them in, and where they then went did not appear to be known. Two years before his death, in 2014, Pete Sherry, a grandson of James and Mrs. Axford, told me that the hostility to the runaway couple was such that a crowd threatened to tar and feather them as they waited on the platform at Blandford Station. Pete, of Mapperton, near Wincanton, confirmed Julietta's claim that they were turned away at Halifax and added that they then spent six months at the pump house in Bath. According to Julietta, Mrs. Axford made a brief return to Bryanston, hoping to collect the younger of her two daughters, Constance. The child refused to leave. I suspect Auntie Con hung on to my mother and said she wouldn't go, Pete told me. 
On February the 17th, Julietta noted her fear that Anderson would continue drawing his rector's stipend as long as he was let alone. She added that his unfrocking would be costly and had to go through the Court of Arches. A quiet end. From Pete Sherry, I learned that after leaving Bath, the elopers went to Montreal, where Anderson eked out a living as an artist. After his death, just seven years later, Mrs. Axford worked as lady-in-waiting to the Molson family, owners of North America's oldest brewing company. She eventually returned to England with a substantial pension from Molson's of £7 and 10 shillings a week. She lived in Worcestershire until her death, aged 98. James Axford, a diminutive man of less than five feet in height, retired in 1923. He subsequently lived with his elder daughter Winifred and her family at West Orchard and later Mapperton, where he died in 1936 and was buried in the churchyard in an elm coffin made by his own hand. Pete recalled, He was a terrific horseman and taught me to ride ponies. He never talked about my grandmother. He was very strict about that and paid a solicitor to make sure she never got in touch with the family. We used to get dollars from Auntie in Canada, and I guess that was my grandmother. After James Axford's death, his estranged wife was accepted back into the family, being introduced not as Winifred's mother, but as Auntie. Roger Guttridge's book, Dorset, Curious and Surprising, includes chapters on the runaway rector and the Derwestern poltergeist. The Gardener with 10,000 Pictures At first glance, Barry Cuff may simply be the expert veg-growing BV columnist. But eagle-eyed readers will also have spotted old pictures of Dorset are usually accredited to the Barry Cuff Collection. Editor Laura finally pinned Barry down to talk about his remarkable archive of almost 10,000 postcards of old Dorset. Even as a young teen in the 60s, I was always stopping into Dorset Bookshop in Blandford, or Longmans of Dorchester, if I got the chance, to see if I could find a new Dorset book I hadn't seen yet. Born in Blandford and raised in Winterbourne Whitchurch, where he lived for 30 years, Barry was always a collector, stamps, matchbox labels cigarette boxes, and he was always fascinated by his beloved Dorset. But in 1974, he received a gift which began his old postcards of Dorset collection. It began with three albums. Our elderly neighbour gave me three Edwardian postcard albums, filled with Dorset images, especially from around the Winterbournes. She'd never married, her brothers had died, and she knew I was fascinated by the old pictures, so she handed them on to me. It was fascinating to look through the albums with her. She knew everyone in them. She'd point at a person, raise her eyebrows and whisper, Love child, at me. Of course, I didn't know what that was back then. Those three albums started Barry on the journey to collate probably the largest existing collection of old postcards of Dorset. He started off by spending his spare time hunting for them in junk shops. I used to pay 20 to 30 pence a card. At 50p, I always walked away, far too much. When postcard collecting became more popular, it was a double-edged sword. All of a sudden, there were fairs popping up, and I could go to Bristol, Brighton, Cheltenham, Twickenham. But it meant that the prices went up too. So what is it about postcards? It's not just the photographs themselves, though they're always the main interest, of course. There are the stories around the photographers too. Nesbitt from Blandford, who photographed locally between 1890 and 1920, 
Chapman, who came up from Devon and only photographed Sturmitz and Newton, Lyme Regis and Wimborne Minster, the late Victorian French brothers who came across the Channel to photograph the whole of the south coast, Clark from Sturmitz and Newton, who never got his fixing solution right, so all his postcards are very faded now, and of course the ones which have actually been written on have their own story to tell. Lost Conversations Many of the postcards were sold for locals and tourists simply to add to their own picture albums in the days before personal photo albums were possible. But many were also sent in the post, giving tantalising glimpses into past conversations, although being England, Barry acknowledges, many of the postcard messages are spent discussing the weather. We shall be very pleased to see you on Monday next. Come to supper if you can, MRW, July 26th, 1910 or in Mr. Mistral's case in Schroten, to complain. Dear Sir, I do not think your two lots of wheat quite good enough for me. If you have anything better, would buy them at market price. November the 22nd, 1902. I presumed with almost 10,000 images currently in his collection, there must be a state-of-the-art filing system to keep the archive organised and easily accessible. Well, they're in albums. I do have individual albums for each of the main towns, Poole, Stir, Weymouth, Portland, Blanford, etc., and other albums are grouped by area. So how does Barry ensure he doesn't duplicate a postcard when he goes to a fair? Oh, I remember them, pretty much. I'm not saying doubling up hasn't happened, probably about 15 times over the years. 15? He's duplicating an image in 50 years of collecting almost 10,000 postcards based on just his memory. Barry looks nonplussed by my bemusement at this. I have trouble remembering what film I saw last week. I just remember them. Barry's lifelong career as a seed analyst began by accident, introduced to the owner of local agricultural company, Blanford and Webb, by the father of a friend. Barry started as a 16-year-old, not actually knowing what a seed analyst was. He trained at the National Institute of Agricultural Botany in Cambridge and has spent his life running a lab, visiting Dorset Farms, growing, assessing and certifying seed. He has been involved in bean breeding and was responsible for multiplying ancient spelt and einkorn seeds for the Eden Project. Despite passing official retirement age, Barry is still working for Sherborne's Pierce Seeds. Who wants to retire? Barry the Lawbreaker. Barry was great friends with Rodney Legg, the late campaigner, author and publisher, and joined him on many adventures through the 70s as Rodney led the campaign to restore public access to the army-occupied Lulworth Ranges, including the village of Tynham, evacuated by the War Office in 1943 and never returned to its former residence. In 1974, we announced that Tynham Post Office had reopened. Rodney took some pictures which we had made into postcards. We opened up the barbed wire on the bank holiday weekend and sold them from the old Tynham post office. Loads of people showed up, as did the army and the police. An unrepentant Barry grins at the memory. Known as the Tynham Action Group, later known as the 1943 Committee, the campaign eventually resulted in access to 10 square miles of land that were also secured from being ploughed or developed. View the collection. If you'd like a little peek into Barry Cuff's collection, a good place to start would be his books, in partnership with author David Burnett. The first, 
currently not available, worth hunting for, is Lost Dorset, the villages and countryside, 1880 to 1920, containing 350 photographs chosen from Barry's remarkable collection, few of which have been published before. This was followed up at the end of last year by Lost Dorset, the towns. Again, few of the 375 postcards chosen for this book have been published before, and they form a unique portrait of urban Dorset between the invention of the postcard until just after World War I. Horses, the mood-altering drugs used by many schools. How exactly does spending time with a horse help when you're struggling? Equestrian columnist and RDA coach Sarah Greenwood reflects on the power of those gentle ears and talks to April Kibbe of Lofty Therapy Horses. Where do you turn if you have a problem? Personally, I'll have a cuddle with a horse and we put the world to rights. Throughout my life I've done the same. I've been lucky enough always to have a horse there to listen. It's not even necessarily about the riding. Is it the feel or the smell of the horse that helps? Or is it just someone that doesn't answer back? It's not just about the exercise. Most of us suffer through short periods of physical or mental health issues, but for some these are lifelong and debilitating, and the Riding for the Disabled Association, the RDA, and equine therapy centres are always there to help, whatever a person's age. Horse therapy has been effective for dementia patients as much as it is for physically impaired children and struggling teenagers. Many schools for pupils with special needs now routinely use RDA sessions. The physical activity provides a sense of independence and freedom while developing coordination and muscle tone. Inevitably, however, the real benefits go far deeper than core strength. Children will increase in confidence, improve communication, gain real-life experiences and even work towards being employed in the equestrian world, among other things. Locally, the wonderful Milton Abbas RDA works with younger children, Brownston RDA works with adults, and the Blackmoor Vale RDA works with all ages. The Stella Hayward Mirhay group work with teenagers from Bemonster School who are finding it difficult to see their way in life. This year, we've focused on work experience, starting with the basics of putting on a head collar, a rug, saddlery. Tying up a horse or a hay net with the correct knot can take a lot of work on coordination. We've been working on the BHS Challenge Awards, as these have small, bite-sized chunks to work on, with certificates that show lifetime skills. Horses often simply help people to talk. Someone who's lonely or just frightened to speak aloud can whisper quietly to a non-judgmental ear. Even walking a horse, whether being ridden or led, around the village will always cause lots of chat and brighten someone's day. My own neighbour and her pony are going to the next village, coffee, cake and chat meeting. It gives people a chance to pat, stroke and talk to a pony that they otherwise might not have. Horse therapy. April Kibby runs Lofty Therapy Horses, Lofty and his friends are miniature horses, pint-sized pals that travel around Yeovil and the surrounding areas, offering animal-assisted therapy. April says, Working with, learning how to care for and interacting with horses has a really positive effect on our mental health. It's been said that horses are mood-altering drugs without the side effects. And that is so true. Horses can read human emotions. They mirror our feelings. They're kind, forgiving, challenging, 
and they're incredibly good at teaching us about ourselves, our emotions, and how we interact with others. Horses provide psychological therapy, helping us to learn about ourselves through interacting and connecting with them, how to manage new challenges, and ultimately leading to new life skills and a more positive outlook on life. Honeysuckle reigns supreme, and it's a busy foaling season at the stud. Mother's Day was not the day of rest and relaxation Lucy Proctor might have planned, but the unusual daytime foalings were special to the team. Foals, foals and more foals. But before we get on to the foals, we have to talk about Honeysuckle. In the middle of March, the TGS bred mare won her second champion hurdle at the Cheltenham Festival, and by so doing, became the first mare ever to have scored twice in the championship race's 95-year history. To give our hard-working team the opportunity to see Honeysuckle in the flesh, we sent them all to Cheltenham on the Tuesday, with the hope they would be shouting her home. With the staff having come in early and rattled through morning stables, they were off shortly after 10 o'clock, leaving the bosses at home to enjoy Honeysuckle's triumph on the television before finishing up for the afternoon. Mother's Day gifts. And so to foals. Most mares foal during the night, and the staff don't see them until they are a few hours old after they arrive at work in the morning. Occasionally a mare will foal during the day. In last month's column, I wrote about sharing the culmination of the dream with the staff when they all came to Wincanton to watch TGS-bred Last Royals win. Now, during March, our staff have been able to share the beginning of the dream, with two mares having foaled in the morning before coffee break, and the third having foaled around tea time. The afternoon foaler was in fact one of four mares to foal on Mother's Day. Literally no rest for new mums, or the bosses, here at TGS. The foals are happily enjoying dry weather and sunshine. The new foals go out for an hour twice a day for the first few days and only in the paddock right by the yard. The older ones go further up the farm for a longer period before they're all back in a warm, dry straw bed for the night. Equestrian obstetrix. Last month we talked about Glanville Guest visiting her chosen stallion with this year's foal at foot. Two weeks after she was covered, mated, we were delighted when our vet scanned her and found her to be in foal, and even happier when she scanned with a heartbeat two weeks after that. The mare will have one final scan at 45 days after covering to check that the pregnancy is progressing normally, and that will be the last check until the stallion fees are due in the autumn. We scanned to confirm that our mares are still in foal on 1st of October. A horse's gestation period is 11 to 12 months. Three other mares have also scanned in foal this month, so the season is progressing well. A poetic double win. To put a cherry atop our March cake, our daughter Alice wrote her first point-to-point -point winner at Larkhill, which then became a double in somewhat unusual circumstances. Her horse in the first, Golden Poet, was the only declaration, so they won with a walkover. In racing, if there is only one runner in a race, that horse still has to go onto the track and cross the finish line, hence the term walkover. Golden Poet was also entered in the last race of the day, which turned out to be a match, two runners, which Golden Poet won by 25 lengths under an excellent ride from Alice for trainer Kieran Burke. We all hope these are the first of many. Toot settles into the fox pit yard with Freebie, Jago and new boy, Taran. 
New columnist Toots Bartlett cannot hide her excitement as she leaves home to move into William Foxpit's yard near Sturminster Newton, buys a horse without seeing him and looks ahead to a busy 2022 season. It was definitely time, but the idea of leaving home and finding a base to begin a professional career within the world of eventing filled me with excitement and some trepidation. I wasn't absolutely sure how to even start the process until I remembered that William Fox Pitt has encouraged young riders in the past by allowing them to be based at his beautiful yard in North Dorset. A few messages with William and a visit with my father and the adventure of moving began. What an absolutely life-changing opportunity to be based alongside one of the world's best eventers and with such fantastic facilities, I'm honestly still pinching myself. We moved in the middle of November, originally bringing three horses, Carlos, 55, Charlie, Freestyle R, Freebie, and Ecstasy SRZ, Gatsby, from home, as well as my wonderful groom, Joel Hartz, and his horse, the Rag Lad. Although the move was a long process, it didn't take long for us all to settle in. The work begins. We spent the winter basically hiding from the weather, made all too easy here with the amazing indoor barn, horse walker and indoor arena. We brought a few of the horses slowly back into work, allowing them to develop their muscle and strength correctly after a few months off. The training has now picked up and we're trying to get the horses out to British show jumping, BS, and British dressage, BD. We have regular training with both William Fox Pitt and Emma Fisher, who was GB Young Rider eventing coach and chef de keep on the jumping side, and Lisa White, FEI International Grand Prix Dressage Rider and Trainer, for the flat work. A new boy. With the excitement of the event season around the corner, I received a call about a fabulous six-year-old about to go up for sale. I'd been saving for a house, but when I heard about him, I knew if I didn't grab him, someone else would. So I used my house deposit money and bought Cory Taran over the phone without actually seeing him. He's the first horse I've owned by myself, and he's worth every penny. He's a superstar in the making, and I can't wait to get him out of venting and to start his career. The rest of the team. My top horse for this season, Freebie, produced the second best dressage, and a double clear at his first event of the season at Twesseldown in March. The remaining four horses all began their event season in the next two weeks. CY, my partner for the last three seasons, is returning to me after a period of rehab, and I can't wait to have him back with us. He's an incredible jumper, and we've gone from BE100, competition level with a maximum height show jumping of 105 centimetres and cross country of 100 centimetres to four star and championship events. CC one four star. L is for experienced riders with advanced horses competing at the top of the sport and who may go on to greater international success at CCI five star L in a very short space of time. We also have a very exciting new horse joining our lovely team in the next coming weeks, so there's a lot to look forward to. 2022 is looking to be a very exciting year ahead with a fantastic team of horses and some big goals to try and fulfil. One man, his horse, his birds and the spirit of freedom. Moving crowds to tears is all in a day's work for Jonathan Marshall, the horseback falconer starring in the new Spring Countryside Show. Talking to Jonathan Marshall is unexpected. 
From a look at his website, my impression was of the ultimate showman persona, shinily cliched with a confidence bordering just on the side of arrogance. I did not expect a quiet, unassuming northerner on the phone, with an irrepressible sense of humour, the deepest love for his horses and falcons spreading through every word and entirely dismissive of his own importance. The fella in the middle of the arena telling the story is irrelevant. An accidental career. Jonathan Marshall's love affair with horses began in early childhood. At 78, his mother still has horses, one of whom is 38 years old. At the age of eight, Jonathan discovered falconry, and the birds soon took over his attention. Eventually, he realised that he could combine his two passions, falconry, with additionally a horseback method of hunting. I never set out to be a horseback falconer. I mean, who does? But in 86, I made it my professional career though I quickly realised I was going to make it a show. I needed the right horses. It's not quite so spectacular if I'm on a donkey. So Jonathan chose to work with the most beautiful Andalusian, Lusitano, Frisian and Arabs. We work on dressage lines, high school moves such as Piaf, Passage, Paso, Espanol, Reverencia and Levade. But I'm well aware I'm not a dressage rider. I'm a showman. We carefully rehearse every second of the shows. The falcons are trained to the lure, flying through the horse's legs. It's all timed to music, and the horses and the birds know exactly what they're doing. It's taken a long time to get the show to where it is now. Our first season was a steep learning curve, and it was, well, let's say it wasn't the most polished performance at first. And it's evolved over time. It's such a natural pairing between the horses and the birds and it always resonates at an instinctive level with the audience. I've noticed it especially since we came back from lockdowns. Last year's shows were far more emotive. I think it has to do with our collective lived experience over the pandemic. At the end of each performance, I allow the horses and birds to run and fly entirely uncontrolled and unrestrained, and I simply run with them. It's the ultimate expression of freedom, and for the first time, I found audiences were crying reacting on a deeply emotional level. It's spontaneous, the only part of the show that's not carefully scripted. It's not a stunt, and I think there's a part for everyone who longs to be as free as those animals in that moment. Books 2. During lockdown, Jonathan began writing. I'm in my 50s now. I've got to think forwards. I'm not so young anymore, and it hurts when I fall off. His first book, Spirit, the Fastest Bird in the World, is a story about acceptance and that no one is more important than anyone else. His second book, A Falcon's Love, which he has illustrated himself, is out shortly. Jonathan will be appearing at the Spring Countryside Show with his 2022 A-Team. Amadeus. In 2018, Jonathan got a call about an unbroken 10-year-old Frisian stallion. Kept purely for breeding, when his owner died, no one knew what to do with him. His sheer size was intimidating. Within a week of bringing him home, however, Jonathan was riding Amadeus on Bude Beach. He was a bit of a bully and was used to getting his own way. The first time I approached him in the stable, he started to push himself forwards at me. But instead of retreating, I kicked the stable door loudly and he backed off. He came at me again, so I kicked the door again. And in a gesture I've come to know and love, he lifted one hoof gently. It was like sorry. And okay, I'll be a good lad. 
He is honestly the kindest, gentlest, most beautiful horse I've ever worked with. Everyone loves him, and he still lifts his hoof to ask permission or apologise, even now. The Falcons Jonathan will be bringing Duchess, Sonnet and Aria, his peregrine lanners, to the Spring Countryside Show. The trio are full sisters, though hatched in different years, and bred by Jonathan himself. I've had falcons since I was eight, and these birds are the best I've ever had. Anyone who breeds an animal knows that sometimes you get a pairing that just produces magic. The parents are good birds, but their offspring are something else. They have the speed and agility you'd expect, of course, but they'll spin as they dive, just for fun. They twist like nothing else. They're amazing birds, spectacular to watch. With hundreds of sheep about to lamb and a major new countryside show to organise, Dorset Shepherdess Bonnie Craddock is in for a busy spring. Tracy Beardsley reports in this month's A Country Living. Bonnie Craddock has been up since silly o'clock. The 26-year-old shepherdess from Ludwell, near Shaftesbury, has nearly a thousand sheep to look after. Add to that her second job of helping to organise two of Dorset's major country shows, and even though she grew up on a dairy farm, she never even wanted to work in agriculture. A soldier, but for a sheep. When her elder sister, Laura, came home from a careers fair with an army key ring, Bonnie decided to find out more. At 16, she passed the officer selection process with flying colours, and at 17 gained an army bursary to do A-levels at Welbeck Sixth Form Defence College. Bonnie went on to Southampton University to study geography through the Defence Technical Undergraduate Scheme, or DTUS, with a view to joining the Logistics Corps. A keen sportswoman, she also played rugby and polo for the army. Ironically, it was the animals she now tends that put paid to her military career. I broke my collarbone when I was five, helping to move sheep with my brother Matt. The old injury played havoc with my shoulder and resulted in me being discharged. For three years now, Bonnie has been learning the skills of sheep farming, guided by her knowledgeable big brother. Her parents are also involved in the administrative side of the business. She says, Matt and I were never that close growing up. Being the youngest of three, I was always either picked on or left out. We get on so well now. Working together has brought us much closer. We've got different strengths and weaknesses, so we pick up where the other one falls down. The glam life of a shepherdess. Lambing season kicks in this month, the hardest part of this job, but the most rewarding, explains Bonnie. My days will start at 4.30 in the morning and I arm myself with a thermos of coffee. We rent our land so our flocks are spread around. Ewe lambs at Lidlinch, a breeding group at Motcombe and more ewe lambs on turnips at Farringdon. It can take four hours to check on them all. Our sheep will lamb outside, usually, and most inconveniently, in the muddiest parts of the field. So we have to set up pens for the mums and their newborns. There we can monitor them more easily and make sure they're suckling and getting enough milk. Just like newborn babies, that first hit of colostrum is essential. Every year, it's all hands on deck to cope with the surge of births. In traditional style, there's a four-year-old collie sheepdog, Brock, working alongside a more modern herder, a quad bike that Bonnie refers to as their game-changer. 
Her mum gets roped in as well, bottle-feeding any lambs who are struggling to feed naturally. She adds, Dad gets involved too, fixing everything my brother breaks. The lambing season starts at the end of April, just one day after Bonnie finishes helping to run the first ever Spring Countryside Show at Turnpike Showground in Motcombe. I've been working a few days a week for the past couple of years for the Gillingham and Shaftesbury Show as Assistant Event Organiser and Assistant Event Secretary. I could never work in an office full-time. I would miss the outdoors, but I love this job. I can work it around, tending to the sheep, and my boss actually believes me when I turn up late for work because of a sheep situation. The spring show means April is going to be a crazy month for me, working flat out on the show, then straight into 10-hour lambing days, followed by an intensive sheep shearing course. And I thought a career in the army would be hard work. Quickfire questions with Bonnie. A-list dinner party guests? Winston Churchill and Jeremy Clarkson. I want to know what Jeremy Clarkson is really like and if he is as clueless a farmer as he seems on TV. I've always been fascinated by history and meeting the man who called the shots in World War II would be incredible. Books on your bedside? Eclectic choices. My mum themes my Christmas presents and last year it was sheep. Sheep tote bag, sheep headband, mittens, and a book, A Short History of the World According to Sheep. That's next to read after I finish my chick lit and a history book about Nazi Germany. It's a steaming pile. Dorset NFU County Chair George Hosford reacts to the recent comments of Environment Secretary George Eustace on not needing artificial fertiliser. I hope George Eustace, the Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, is listening. He who seriously seems to believe that we don't need artificial fertilisers because there is enough manure and digestate in the country to sufficiently fertilise all of our crops. With this sweeping statement, he is implying, one, that we have been wasting fertiliser all these years because we never actually needed it, and two, we must have millions of tonnes of farmyard manure hiding somewhere that we accidentally haven't been using. The fact is that we already use 48 million tonnes of manures on our crops in the UK every year, plus 1 million tonnes of nitrogen fertiliser, which contains approximately 33 times as much nutrient as there is in a tonne of manure. To think this is replaceable with manure is simply ridiculous. We have nowhere near enough animals, and we keep being told that animals are bad for the climate, but that's a story for another day. I have tried to convince myself that public money for public goods will really make sense when we see what it means. That environmental land management schemes, ELMS, the primary mechanism for distributing the funding previously paid under Common Agricultural Policy, CAP, ELMS will pay farmers for undertaking actions to improve the environment, will eventually arrive just as BPS expires, with an administrative system that works first time, complete with a functioning mapping system. I'm sure that the disconnect between farming rules for water and creating healthier soils will be mended. NFU President Minette Batters has said the Environment Agency's interpretation of the farming rules for water effectively banned farmers from spreading organic manures on land in the autumn. This is contrary to government aims to improve soil health under the forthcoming Sustainable Farming Incentive Scheme. 
Spreading organic manures in early autumn was better than spreading onto bare soils in February, she added. I generally try to be a glass-half-full person, but when faced with such ignorance as has been shared recently, I find myself really struggling to remain calm. To save or not to save? Rocketing input prices and yo-yoing grain prices leave farmers with a very high risk of making bad decisions. Fertiliser is in the spotlight, not only because of price, but because of supply. How many will go short this year? Some well-resourced farmers are in the habit of buying their nitrogen requirement almost a year before they need it, and those who did so last year should be feeling very smug right now. Prices have risen by a factor of four. But should they be using all that fertiliser this year, or should they save half it for next year? We are often reminded that 50% of the nitrogen applied to a crop gives up to 80% of the yield. NIAB, the National Institute of Agricultural Botany, has many graphs demonstrating that the last bit of fertiliser, which we have in the past often applied just in case, barely pays for itself in more years than when it does. So is this a time for experimentation, to see what we can get away with and still grow a profitable crop? Headline yield is not what we need to pay the rent. It is the margin over costs that really matters. And right now we need to do our sums really carefully. On top of fertiliser woes, we have a huge headache over fuel price and availability. Without fuel, we can't spread fertiliser even if we have any. And let's be honest, something will grow even if it gets no fertiliser at all. But without fuel, we won't be able to harvest what has grown. So I know which I consider the more important. Having said that, for red diesel to be costing more than Derv does at local pumps once the 47p per litre difference in fuel duty has been taken into account, someone's doing nicely. Update. As we go to press, the government has announced steps to assist farmers with the availability of fertilisers for the coming growing season to help address uncertainty among growers and keep farmers' costs down. With agricultural commodities closely linked to global gas prices, Farmers are facing rising costs for inputs, including manufactured fertiliser, due to the process depending on gas. Environment Secretary George Eustace has announced that changes to the use of urea fertiliser will be delayed by at least a year. In a move to further support farmers, revised and improved statutory guidance has been published on how farmers should limit the use of slurry and other farmyard manure at certain times of year. This will provide clarity to farmers on how they can use slurry and other manures during autumn and winter to meet agronomic needs. This guidance will provide more clarity and has been developed with farmers and farming bodies. Environment Secretary George Eustace said, The significant rise in the cost of fertiliser is a reminder that we need to reduce our dependence on manufacturing processes dependent on gas. Many of the challenges we face in agriculture will require a fusion of new technology with conventional principles of good farm husbandry. The measures are not the whole solution, but will help farmers manage their nitrogen needs in the year ahead. NFU President Minette Bassas said, Many of the measures today, particularly the updated guidance on the farming rules for water, which will allow autumn manure spreading, are positive for farmers. This is what the NFU has been asking for, and I'd like to thank government for making these changes. Finally, a police escort. A small bunch of sheep went walkabout in the village recently. By the time we caught up with them, a couple of police cars had joined the chase, careering into the village with sirens wailing and blue lights flashing. 
It was the usual problem of someone leaving a footpath gate open, so the sheep enjoyed a few hours of freedom. Caught on one resident's hedgehog webcam, and a neighbour filmed them wandering around their garden nibbling bits of this and that, before being escorted back to the field under the eye of the law. The arrival of good weather has meant a busy but productive month on the farm, but James Cossin says in 40 years he's never had to deal with such market volatility. March has been a very productive month here on Rawston Farm. All the sowing of our spring beans and spring malting barley has been completed into good seed beds. Most crops have received some fertiliser to give them an early boost, and we've managed to cover most of the spring-sown area with farmyard manure, produced from our cattle, which should, hopefully, save on spreading so much expensive purchased fertiliser. The milking cows have also been let out to graze, much to their delight, and are enjoying the sunshine and fresh green grass. We also managed a clear TB test, much to everyone's relief, although we now need another clear test in 60 days in order to be able to sell cattle to other farmers without needing a movement licence. Prices, carbon and food. Many of our farming meetings seem to revolve around being net zero and measuring our carbon footprint. I know the war in the Ukraine has put some of the discussions on the back burner, but we're still being encouraged to work out what our emissions are and how we can improve. It seems that farmers are in the forefront of carbon emission targets, without too much regard concerning the food we're actually producing. The government still don't seem to recognise the importance of food security in this country. We're only about 60% self-sufficient, and current affairs show us that we should not rely on imported foods. Interestingly, our number two coal supplier was Russia, with the USA being number one, the coal being used to keep our steel manufacturer going in the UK. The war in Ukraine means we now have to import from Canada and Australia, but no one seems to be discussing the environmental impact of doing this. It's a challenge. The government should be prioritising food production to make sure that its citizens are fed and can get the food they want from local sources. With Ukraine being a large exporter of cereals, vegetable oils, seeds, fruits, fats and a large number of chickens, the sudden lack of exports has led to a dramatic shortage, naturally leading to an increase in prices to us all. I don't think in over 40 years of farming I've ever experienced such volatility in the price of what we buy and sell on the farm. It makes any future budgeting decisions very difficult. With all this going on, and with the government encouraging us towards ever more regenerative farming and reducing our carbon emissions, life on the farm seems quite a challenge. The Apprentice Employing people to work on farms, like any other industry, is a key part of the success of any business. In agriculture, quite often employees stay on one farm for many years. One member of staff has recently retired after giving us 51 years of loyal service. Recruiting new members to any team can be challenging, so we decided at Ralston Farm to take an apprentice. We thought it was important to train young people in the workplace with the backup of our local college, Kingston Moorwood. Our apprentice, Ellie Taylor, came to us about 18 months ago with limited agricultural knowledge, but she was keen to learn, especially about dairy cattle. She has now progressed to looking after our calf unit and can be called in for relief milking as and when required. She recently received her certificate with distinction for her apprenticeship scheme. 
We need to bring more young people into farming, and apprenticeships with the right person and the right ambition are a great solution. It's time to find the first mushrooms and your crop of hairy bittercress. April sees the start of the mushroom season, and expert forager Carl Minton says you definitely have hairy bittercress in your garden right now. As we tick into April, the changeable weather can often remind us of winter one moment and tease us with tastes of summer the next. This year, after such a mild winter, I am expecting a bountiful wild harvest to begin earlier than usual. Indeed, we can already see magnolia trees in full flower. Elsewhere, those of us with a gardening bent will likely see the increased determination of our garden weeds to populate our beds and pots, and that is where we will begin this month's foraging guide. Hairy bittercress. Like so many of our most common garden weeds, hairy bittercress, cardamine hirsuta, is a diminutive and assuming plant that you probably don't notice despite its eager determination to pitch up on every small patch of ground it's given a chance to find. A pioneer plant, hardy species which are the first to colonise barren environments of previously biodiverse steady-state ecosystems that have been disrupted, such as by fire, it can take root in ground deemed unworthy of many other weeds, and as a result it can be found in well-trodden paths and, well, just about anywhere from pavement cracks to plant pots. Its name is somewhat misleading, however. It's not that hairy without a very close inspection, indeed, and it's definitely not bitter. In fact, it serves very well as a replacement for any commercially produced cress, and feels very at home in an egg sandwich. It truly is a delight to eat, and every forager owes it to themselves to familiarise themselves with this abundant plant. If you have a garden, then right now you have this plant growing in it somewhere, I'm willing to wager. Birch tea. Next up, let's talk about an often overlooked tree, the birch, specifically the silver birch, Betula pendula, and downy birch, Betula pubescens. The young leaves of the birch tree are often one of the first to greet the spring and can be infused with hot water to make a peppery, slightly minty tea. A refreshing drink after a morning's forage and rich in vitamin C. Silver birch leaves are simple with serrated edges and round corners, whereas the downy birch has rounder leaves than those of the silver birch, but both grow all over the Blackmore Vale. If you cared to be a little more adventurous, you could also attempt to tap these trees for sap, although the season for doing so is ending as we leave the winter's months behind. Note to self, let's talk tree tapping next February. St George's mushroom. Finally, let's talk about the St George's mushroom, Calisobe gambosa, the first eagerly awaited prize for a new wild mushroom season. Traditionally, late April and May is peak St George mushroom time, Hence the name, since it would tend to appear around St George's Day. I would expect to see these any time this month or next, if you are lucky and committed enough to go looking for them. They have a pale complexion and an unevenly shaped cap, with gills that match the pale colour of the cap. A stout stem attaches this mushroom to the grassland habitat they grow in. They will grow in rings, and these rings can often be spotted long before the mushroom actually appears, as they exhibit circles of lush grass, a deeper colour than that of the grass around them. It has what is often described as a mealy smell. To me it smells like bread flour. 
and this smell is one of its key identification characteristics, which makes it a quite safe mushroom to identify. And the cherry of the mushroom cake is if you find yourself a patch, they will likely come back every year. It's also worth mentioning that wild garlic and all the other plants I mentioned in March's issue of the BV magazine are still available to harvest, so you might want to click that link and revisit before you leave the house. The hairy-footed flower bee. They may sound like a character from a Brambley Hedge book, but Mr and Mrs Hairyfoot are a quintessential 20s couple, says Jane Adams. She's a head-turner, orange-stockinged, and with eyes that match the dark velvet of her tasseled dress, she somehow has the knack of looking glamorous without being garish. Her bow's the same. They're a well-matched pair. He sports a loose-fitting suit of reddish-yellow tweed, and as he fusses around her, the fringe of his silky scarf ripples in the breeze. They're the quintessential 1920s couple. Or they would be, if they weren't bees. But these aren't any old bees. These are hairy-footed flower bees, one of many harmless solitary bees that live for just a few short weeks in gardens and green spaces in Dorset. Males appear first, in late February or March, depending on the temperature. You'll often meet him in the garden, staking his claim over pulmonaria, primroses, dead nettles, daffodils and cowslips, and though bumblebee-sized, he has a distinctive, darting, jazzed-up way of flying and high-pitched buzz. He gets his quirky name from the long, silky ginger-brown hairs hanging from his middle legs and feet, and if you're in his territory, he might try to chase you away. It's all bravado. He's harmless, and in common with other male bees, doesn't have a sting. Besides chasing you and insects that stray into his patch, he'll hope for a female, or two, to come and feed, which they'll do within a week or two. Black but for her gingery-haired back legs, the female couldn't look more different from the male, and once mated, she'll make a nest within the soft mortar of a wall, or vertical surface of a coastal cliff. Here she'll leave pollen collected on her orange-stockinged legs for her unborn young, and after repeating this several times in several nests, her job is done. She won't see her progeny grow into adults. By June, she and any males will usually have died. But don't worry, new head-turners will be back again next year. Come on, soil your pants by Charlotte Toombs. Soil testing is often expensive, usually unfathomable. But there is another way to check your soil health, says expert Charlotte Toombs. Soil your pants? Ew, I hear you all cry. Disgusting. What on earth is she on about now? Allow me to explain. The latest science emphasis in growing flowers or vegetables is all about your soil's health. Is this something else we have to worry about now? On digging a bit deeper, excuse the pun, it does seem to make some sense. If your soil is super healthy and full of all the microorganisms it needs, then your plants too will thrive and flourish as they take up all those lovely nutrients from that super healthy soil. But we need to understand more. An unorthodox test lab. The conventional way to test your soil is to spend money on a specialist kit Send away the samples to be tested in a laboratory and then receive the results back and not really understand what they are or be any clearer on the findings. Is a low pH level good or bad? 
I barely knew what that meant at school. The unconventional way, and the one I have read up on, is far simpler. You need to plant a pair of 100% cotton Y-fronts or boxers. Best to ask the owner's permission before taking them. You don't want to be burying his lucky pants. In the soil in your garden. Bury the pants, several pairs, if your garden is extensive, roughly 10 to 15 centimetres deep in your flower or vegetable beds, and simply leave them for six weeks. Mark where you planted them, or sometime in the future you will have men in white, all in one suits, looking for where the body is buried, and make a note in your diary of when to dig them up. After your six weeks are up, if the pants are still wearable and will protect your modesty, then your soil needs attention. If they are ragged and rotting, then you've lost a pair of pants, but can rest assured that at least your soil is alive and well. You should have good healthy flowers and vegetables, and probably buy some new pants. Apparently the optimum season to try this experiment is the summer months, when the soil's biology is more active. What to do next? If your experiment reveals less than healthy soil, there are a few things that you can do. Firstly, stop using pesticides and chemicals. Their effects underground might not be obvious at first, but in time they might be having the opposite effect to the one intended and be destroying your garden. Secondly, minimise digging so as to avoid disturbing the complex structure of the soil. Farmers have almost entirely stopped ploughing their fields for this same reason. Of course, do add peat-free, or better still, your own, garden compost and other well-rotted organic matter to the top and just let the worms bring this down into the soil. I will report back on the result of my test and share the results, but not the pictures. Barry Cuff shares what's happening on the allotment this month and what he's cropping and what he's planted. With few crops left in the ground to harvest and the start of planting or sowing for the coming season, March is the beginning of the new allotment year. We're picking plentiful spears of both early and late purple sprouting broccoli, Rudolph and Claret. Claret started to produce earlier than normal, brought on by the days of glorious sunshine, which started on the 17th. We cut our first medallion cauliflower mid-month, not as large as the winter cropping Sendis, which we grow, but still of a good size. We grow this variety because it always crops earlier than other spring varieties, and we need to clear the ground for the next crop, which will be potatoes. We have a six-year rotation of all our crops, except potatoes, which are three years. Throughout the month, we also harvested parsnips and leeks. With a good supply of both, we were able to give some to other allotmenteers. At home, we cut our second lot of chicons on the 25th. Hopefully, we'll get a third cut in about three weeks' time. By the time you hear this, we'll have planted seven lines of potatoes. The following, Foremost, Charlotte, Elf, International Kidney, McCain Royal and Rooster. Further lines of Rooster and Picasso will be planted in April. By the 25th, the soil temperature should be warm enough to sow part lines of carrot and beetroot. In the greenhouse, we have plug trays of onions, cabbages and lettuce, and these will be ready to plant out in April. During the sunny days, we've enjoyed seeing commas, small tortoiseshells, brimstones and orange tips flying over the plots. Despite two days of heavy rainfall, over an inch on the 11th with a further 0.8 inches on the 16th, our soil dug well after about six days. We only dig about one third of our total plot area each year to fit in with the rotation, 
I love digging, and it never seems like hard work with a good long handle spade. Garden jobs for April. Now's the time to start planning your hanging baskets, says Sherborne gardener Pete Harkham, but keep watching out for frosts. April at last. Things really do get going in the garden in April. There's lots to do now. Watch out for frosts. Even if the days are warm, watch out for frosts at night and resist the temptation to sow and plant out too early. Keep an eye on the weather forecast and wait a few days if necessary. Protect any early outdoor sowings with fleece. The growing lawn will also need attention, including sowing fresh grass seed on any bare spots. Hanging baskets at the ready. Hanging baskets can now be made up in a cold greenhouse. Top tip. Use a pot to stand the basket in while you plant it up. When it's done, either hang the basket up in the greenhouse or keep it standing on the pot for support. Don't hang the basket up outside until the danger of frost is well over. I've seen some baskets in the last few years that have been mounded up, in effect, to create a large ball of flowers. To create a huge ball of flowers, lots more moss is needed to line the basket, and the higher the mound, the soil is also mounded up. You need to have a basket that's not less than 15 inches in diameter and is capable of having flowers planted through the sides of the basket, through the wire sides of the basket. Once it's well underway, don't forget to deadhead the flowers throughout the season as this helps repeat flowering. These large hanging baskets may need an irrigation drip to ensure they're watered regularly too. Understand your fertiliser. These huge balls of flour will need regular feeding with a slow-release fertiliser high in potash for more flowers. All fertiliser plant foods have NPK on their packs. N stands for nitrogen, P stands for phosphorus, and K stands for potassium or potash. Have a close look at the packs when next in a garden centre. A fertiliser with NPK of 7.7.7 would be a balanced fertiliser. 10.5.3 would be for early in the year plant growth, i.e. high in nitrogen. And for lots of flowers, i.e. later in the season and hanging baskets, an NPK of, say, 5.5.12 would be good. Ugly Shelf Fillers or Undervalued, Beautiful and Useless by Craig Wharton and Philip Traves Antique and Vintage Cut Glass has a place in every home and should never be kept for best, argue antique experts Craig Wharton and Philip Traves. We have always been attracted to antique glassware. Quality glassware from the past 200 years is still very reasonably priced. Decanters dating back to the early 1800s can be purchased for under £50. Top quality makes, like Waterford, can still be less than £40 a glass. Beautiful, fine, Art Deco cocktail glasses are very popular at the moment, as are sets of quiche baby sham glasses, with matching baby sham plastic deer, of course, so much so that the 60-year-old giant baby sham Bambi is back in pride of place in Shepton Mallet. 200 years of surviving. The quality of Regency cut glass is so high, it's all hand-blown and then cut with a lovely grey colour due to the high lead content. It is amazing how much glass has survived over 200 years and is still usable today. Take the lovely glass rinses, small bowls with two lips, which were used in the 18th and 19th centuries for cooling glasses with ice, the melted ice being poured away. New uses for old glass. 
Old and chipped cut glass decanters can be used in the kitchen. Why not store olive oil infused with garlic or use them for slow gin? An antique glass decanter with polished silver wine label looks very elegant and always improves the look of any value gin. Cut glass bowls are great to use for a homemade trifle. Didn't all our grandmothers use one for this? Cut glass or etched vases never disappoint when filled with some fresh flowers in a sunny window with sunlight refracting through the glass facets. Don't keep it in a cupboard. Why not use your better quality glassware more? I discussed this with my mother and her inner wheel group a few years ago. My mother is of the generation who grew up post-World War II, and they of course never waste a thing. So her everyday glasses were the ones which we all remember. They came free with petrol tokens in the 1970s. She, of course, had her four best glasses packed away, and frankly, she never used them. I asked why not, and she really didn't have a good answer. She now uses her good glasses every single day. Even the bedside water glass is a pretty cut glass tumbler. And she says the wine tastes so much better. There's endless enjoyment from the bottom of a wine glass, says expert wine merchant Sadie Wilkins from Sherborne. But make sure you keep an open mind. One of the things I love about wine is the fact that each glass becomes an experience. There are so many variables that are tightrope walking in any given bottle that it's hard not to feel excited or like there's an opportunity to feel something new from the bottom of each glass. So, I suppose the question I'm posing is, can we ever truly suss out a single grape variety? There are so many factors at play, from climate and terroir to winemaking processes and blending. The easy and enthralling answer is simply no. However, does this mean that we never know where we stand? To an extent, yes. But we can, of course, always fall back on tradition, long-standing terroir conditions and appellations to protect the typicity of a given region, right? Though, even in these contexts, we can't account for climate change and the individual personality of a winemaker, which influences their unique style. They are, after all, human. Do you take your Malbec French or Argentinian? Let's take Malbec, for example, a grape which has risen to heady heights over the last 20 years. It's often a grape that customers feel confident in claiming as a variety they know and love. Interestingly, though, we can often bet that 75% of the time when they say, I like Malbec, that they mean they like Argentine Malbec, as the recent popularity is thanks to the South American revival. Malbec from this region, most notably Mendoza, is incredibly different to a glass of Malbec from France, the country of origin. If it's made in Argentina, you're going to have a warmer climate and grapes that ripen at a faster rate. Therefore, you can expect a very fruit-forward, plummy style, alongside a fuller body, which quite often has more in-your-face oak ageing than its French counterpart, which is still plummy in flavour, but has a drier, more subtle, freshly picked from the hedgerow style. The same goes for many other wine grapes. A Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, for example, offers a greener palette with vibrant vine tomatoes, gooseberries and cut grass notes, in comparison to a leaner, more mineral French take from the Loire. Handy benchmarks. But what I've done here is rely on my previous experiences to create a typical grape experience, an expectation in my mind. 
But wine is much more than that. We source wines at vineyards that are both typical and unusual examples of a grape variety. But that's where having a benchmark standard comes in handy. It gives you a point of comparison. The actual beauty of wine is being taken on a journey from a single sip, whether that be to a place of surprise or somewhere within your comfort zone. So is it ever worth pigeonholing a grape when there's so much at play in each given vineyard? For us, an open mind is the best approach and is the very thing that makes a career in wine so much fun. Why should we create a business culture of volunteering? The benefits of a volunteering policy are far wider than simply giving back. And ESG work, says Ian Gerling, CEO of Dorset Chamber. Hello and welcome to my April column. At last it feels spring is with us and it's brilliant to have the lighter evenings and mornings. This month I'd like to talk about the value of volunteering, not just for individuals, but how this is a fantastic concept for both employers and employees to really embrace. Many businesses are now focusing on this as part of their ESG, environmental, social and governance work, and this can really be a win-win for all involved. Why is volunteering so important? Over the last few years, the third sector has been called upon to deliver more and more as funding for public services has been reduced. The third sector plays an incredibly important role, and this has never been more evident than over the past couple of years with Covid and now the terrible situation we see in Ukraine. Many charities and voluntary groups are being stretched to their limits in terms of capacity. These organisations can hugely benefit from volunteering and enabling volunteers to offer their expertise to help. Build it into business. There are huge amounts of volunteering opportunities of all types available. Many employers now support a specific charity or cause each year and will also give employees an allocated number of paid days to volunteer. This enables these employers to make a positive contribution to support the community and voluntary sector, and to support the vital work the sector delivers. Importantly, this isn't about PR. Many employers go about this very quietly. For the employer, it also results in motivated employees who are able to help make a difference. An attractive workplace. Many employers also report real recruitment challenges. It is very much an employee-driven market. Employees will now often have a very clear idea of the type of business they want to work for. Businesses that are a force for good with strong values and ethics. Businesses that embrace volunteering will be attractive to many future employees. If you are interested in volunteering, you can see a range of opportunities on the Volunteer Centre Dorset website. That's volunteeringdorset.org.uk Fulfilment, meaning and giving back. More than ever, the younger workforce, that's Generation Z and the Millennials, not only want but expect these things in their workplace. They're looking for a more rewarding, engaging and meaningful career experience rather than gym memberships and health plan perks. Aside from just being a good thing to do, companies that offer paid time off for volunteering can attract and retain top talent, boost productivity, instill a sense of purpose and meaning in employees, and go some way to improving the employee engagement challenge. Three surprising ways to sleep better that you may not have yet tried. 
some of the healthiest foods can be the most inexpensive. Nutritional therapist Karen Geary explores the options for cheap protein and veg. I've just concluded a gruelling six months writing up my dissertation on sleep disturbance during menopause. I can't say much here, as it's yet to be published, but what I can share are a few surprising things I learned about sleep more generally and what we can do to help us have better quality sleep. The Sleep Council in the UK says that 40% of us suffer with sleep issues of some description and for all kinds of reasons, so we know lack of sleep affects a lot of people. The pandemic has materially added to the numbers, with a number of pieces of research indicating that the prevalence of stress, anxiety and depression have all increased over the last two years, leading to greater sleep disturbance and the potential for developing long-term habitual sleep issues if left unchecked. Sleep isn't just getting some rest. Lack of sleep makes us vulnerable to infections and illnesses, lowers our immunity and encourages weight gain. Prolonged sleep deficiency can lead to chronic systemic low-grade inflammation and is associated with various diseases that have an inflammatory component, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease and neurodegeneration. Good sleep improves your immunity and, among other things, it can also increase your brain function – promote skin health and control insulin and therefore help with weight management, and is anti-aging. Most people who suffer with sleep issues say that they've tried everything, and this was certainly the case in my research. If you struggle with sleep, you have no doubt already heard about terms such as sleep hygiene, the importance of winding down, stepping away from the smartphones and having a cool room, etc. If that is you and you're still not sleeping properly, then listen on. I hope not to disappoint, but then again, you already know there's no magic bullet. Your food may be keeping you awake. When we eat. Eating too late is a common issue for people with sleep disturbance. By the time they get home from work and have dealt with family and evening routines, mealtimes can be quite late. I had a Spanish client who didn't eat until 9pm at the earliest, which of course is cultural for him, but his sleep was terribly disturbed and he was suffering the next day. We agreed to see what happened if he brought his mealtime forward and went to bed slightly earlier. Over a period of six weeks, he lost weight and the quality of his sleep improved. While this is an example of one, a recent study concluded that both sleep efficiency and the timing of going to bed were factors in managing blood sugar. People who had a later bedtime were less able to control their blood sugar the next morning and craved a sugary breakfast. Poor blood sugar control can lead to poor sleep. I know from my own experience that I sleep and eat much better if I eat before 7pm. What we eat. There was a fascinating edition of Secrets of Your Supermarket Food last year, Season 3, Episode 2, when Stefan Gates and Haley Pedrick demonstrated through monitoring the impact caffeine, alcohol and takeaways can have on sleep. Alcohol and caffeine are well-known sleep disruptors, so experiment with what is right for you. A high caffeine, alcohol and salt intake can also wake you up in the night needing to pee, so cut down on those if that's happening to you. There are some studies that suggest that foods with good dietary sources of tryptophan, found in foods such as chicken and turkey, tofu, milk, salmon, oatmeal, pumpkin seeds, and melatonin, found in milk, 
tart cherry juice and pistachios may lead to better sleep outcomes. Aging. I found a number of interesting studies showing that while sleep may be shorter with aging, it may get deeper. So while you may be frustrated with waking up early, the quality of your sleep may not be quite as bad as you think. One way of improving sleep is to make sure that our internal clocks reflect the natural periods of day and night. Help this by consciously stepping outside in the morning and getting 15 minutes of daylight in your eyes. This action begins the process of converting serotonin to our nighttime hormone, melatonin. Melatonin reduces as we age, so encouraging this through daylight exposure may be helpful. Matthew Walker, in his book, Why We Sleep, suggests that if you're waking up super early, try the daylight exposure technique slightly later in the morning. Has moving past the equilux improved your mood? The spring equilux, when day and night are equal, is often the subconscious trigger for us waking out of a winter slump, says Izzy Anwell of Dorset Mind. An equinox and a solstice occur twice each year, once in the spring and summer and once in the autumn winter. The equinoxes sit between the two solstices, that's the longest and the shortest days, and mark the point where the sun crosses the Earth's celestial equator and becomes equally positioned between the northern and southern hemispheres. The spring equinox, which began on the 20th of March, signifies the point where days become longer than the nights. We all know that long dark nights paired with low temperatures and unsurprising downpours can take a toll on our mood and make us feel sluggish. With daylight hours increasing and the sun sitting higher in the sky, we now have the opportunity and the time not only to give our homes a much-needed spring clean, but also to consider whether our minds and bodies need a spring refresh as well. Five Ways to Wellbeing The Five Ways to Wellbeing is a proven group of steps that we can use to check and identify the dust we collect as a result of winter stressors. They provide ideas about what we can do to help manage our well-being. 1. Take notice. The first step encourages us to pay attention to what is going on in our environment. In the context of spring, this may be done by taking a walk and noticing the new life arising, new plant growth or a rise in temperature. 2. Get active. Taking notice leads nicely into the next stage. And getting active isn't as scary as it sounds. Think low impact, high reward. Walking, for example, is a free, easy way to get active. Never dismiss the power of a simple walk. Walking helps to build stamina and improve heart health. And with warmer climbs on their way, a walk in the sunshine is a surefire way to blow away cobwebs. 3. Learning with spring comes change, and learning something new is the third stage of the five ways. It can help us to stay spry and build new neural pathways. So why not pick up a new hobby or learn something new? 4. Give back. Speaking of which, the fourth stage of the checklist is give back. Why not make your new hobby or activity a fundraising activity for a charity or volunteering? I know that when we feel overwhelmed with life, it may feel like we've nothing more to offer people. However, when we give back, we get back. In return, not only in the form of validation that we're doing something good, but also that it's making a difference. 5. Connect. 
The final stage motivates us to work on our connections with our loved ones and our social groups, but also to connect with our own body and our mind too. This stage might be considered the most important. Without connection to our body and mind, the other four stages become difficult to implement. Without connection to our minds, we cannot take notice of what's weighing on us or learn something new. And without connection to our body, we cannot know how best to nourish it. 